Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. And welcome to another week of the Colin McEnroe Show. My week began a little bit earlier. I was actually on the air starting at like 6.40 this morning doing pledge breaks. Um, but I'm still of sound mind, if not of sound body. And I think I can get us through this show, which has a lot of complexity to it, too. There's sort of a lot of different um, – lot, there was a lot of material to master. I, I sound like I'm whining now. I shouldn't be whining. I have a great job. Uh, we're going to start with um, kind of a novel way of thinking about – gun control responses to the recent, the most recent episode of gun violence. Um, uh, we'll also, on a, slum, on a much lighter vein, in a much lighter, lighter vein, we'll be talking about the return to the airwaves of Saturday Night Live for its 41st season. Uh, on Saturday night, they uh, mined political humor very heavily uh, for their material. Uh, and then uh, towards the end of the show, uh, Dahlia Lithwick is going to join us. I should say Eric Deggins, who's a TV critic for NPR, uh, is going to join us for the SNL part. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick, the Slate Courts and Law reporter and the host of Amicus, will join us for the final segment. Kind of look at the docket of, uh, of cases that are coming up before the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, how they might uh, change the legal landscape. Uh, but first, as I say, we're going to talk about guns. Um, obviously, we're in one of our periodic, all too frequent conversations, national conversations about guns after the shootings in Oregon. And you might be wondering, well, is there anything new to say about this? Is there a way of looking at it that I haven't thought about before? You may have thought about this before or not, but uh, we're going to talk to uh, Jennifer Tucker, Associate Professor of History uh, and the College of the Environment uh, at Wesleyan University. Um, she's got a, a couple of interesting perspectives on, um, on guns and how America regulates guns, what we assume to be true about the nature of the Second Amendment. But uh, Jennifer Tucker, first of all, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. And let's begin with this. Um, you know, Ralph Nader uh, just opened his American Tort Museum in Winstead uh, a few days ago. And um, it was about a week ago, I guess. Uh, and it seems kind of appropriate because one of the things that we don't do with guns is treat them as a fundamentally dangerous consumer product, right? Uh, if you've got a, a car or a toaster uh, that kills people, you've got a TV that blows up, you've got a factory that spews a dangerous particulate emissions into the atmosphere, there are ways in which for, that can be addressed uh, on a regulatory basis, but also uh, as a matter of litigation. You're hurting me. Stop. I'm taking you to court. Uh, there may be damages. Guns exist in this completely sui generis category. Why is that? Uh, well, I think a couple of reasons. Uh, our nation's lax attitude toward gun proliferation is partly the result of a Hollywood version of gun technology. There's a 1953 movie, Shane, mm -hmm. which has had a powerful influence. Shane is a gunfighter. And in a conversation about gun control, he says, a gun is just a tool. It's as good or bad as the man that uses it. We've We've heard this notion a lot, and, but that's, a, that's certainly not a notion. That's an idea that we apply to other consumer products in America. And we could take, for example, um, the recent scandal over Volkswagen's polluting engines um, to illustrate this difference. 
So after Volkswagen's recent admission that it used illegal devices to cheat on admission testing of diesel vehicles in the United States, the company faces billions of dollars of fines along with expensive recalls and class action lawsuits and criminal charges. Janet McCabe, the um, acting assistant administrator for the EPA's Office of Air and Radiation, said in response to the ruling that while, and this is a quote, while individual vehicles don't create a health threat, collectively they do harm the public's health. And um, the turning point was uh, for, for the issue of air pollution in automobiles was the, the Federal Clean Air Act of 1970, which was introduced by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. And it's been estimated that that, that act has averted tens of thousands of premature deaths and it, it succeeded because it took a scientific approach to the impacts of the activities of private actors on the health of fellow citizens. And um, in contrast to that, while the impact of automobiles on the public's health and safety is closely regulated, astonishingly, the firearms that are used to kill Americans are not subject to any such government oversight. Well, and that's sort of intentional by Congress. We we should pause and say in 2005, they passed an extraordinary law effectively exempting guns and gun manufacturers from conventional notions of liability. Why, why, how or why did that happen? Um, well, there are a number of reasons why, but it, it fits a, a pattern of changes to the the ways that guns are um, that, that, that guns are exempted from consumer safety laws. At the time, it was criticized. It was, it was, the statute was intended to block lawsuits by individuals and municipalities that sought to hold gun manufacturers and dealers liable for negligence when their weapons were used in crimes. But this was the first time in American history that the federal government stepped in and retroactively deprived injured people of their vested legal rights under state law. And not only that, and this is another... Um, change that we've seen in the last 30 years um, is that not only are firearm manufacturers protected from liability, they're also, unlike automobile manufacturers, shielded from the production of evidence of the harmful impact of their products. That's because the Centers for Disease Control has been effectively barred since 1996 from funding research into the causes of firearm-related deaths. Um, in fact, none of the, uh, the law reads that none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may be used to, quote, advocate or promote gun control. So we don't see comparable admonitions against generating data from research that might be used to promote um, stopping smoking or or the avoidance of healthy diets. Um, those are nowhere to be found. Now, it, it would be argued, and, and I think it's already being argued in Twitter, uh, is that, okay, so these are all kind of different. Well, maybe smoking is a good analogy, but that, um, that guns when they go off, when they shoot bullets, they're working the way that they're supposed to work. Um, and, 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 and not only that, but they're working the way they sp they're supposed to work in the hands of somebody who's making a decision about how to use them. So it's, you know, if I, if I try to make toast in my toaster and my toast catches on fire and I catch on fire, mm -hmm. um, that's the manufacturer's fault. Whereas for gu gun manufacturers, they make guns that shoot bullets and then people go and do things with those guns, you, you know, and, and the, the choices that those people make are not like my choice to make toast. Mm -hmm. I, if, I, if I'm making toast, I, I should just be able to make toast and not get killed. Whereas these guns get used by people a certain way. D d does that have any force of argument? Well, um yeah, I mean, I think firearm manufacturers um, 
can help reduce gun accidents if they stop, for example, making guns that go off when dropped, if they had child safety locks, the same way that we have child-resistant packaging for aspirin that was invented in 1967 after accidents involving children opening packaging and ingesting it um, was causing injury and death. The U.S. Congress passed the Poison Prevention Packaging Act, um, and now we have safety packaging on, on um, aspirin, but not on but not, not on guns. We don't have child-resistant child packaging on that. Automobile manufacturers could, in the same way that they make personalized radios that won't work if they're stolen, it would be easy to make it harder for criminals to steal and resell guns um, by introducing you know, many personalized identification systems. Um, and that's not even getting into background checks. You could also even, you know, looking at limiting magazine capacity, making it harder for an individual to shoot um, you know, a, a number of people at, at the same time. So gun manufacturers actually would, could easily do more to address the problem of deaths resulting from accidents and crimes involving their products, and it would be great to see them doing that. But like manufacturers of many com commodities, um, and as, certainly as Ralph Nader found, they won't necessarily do so unless new non-voluntary standards emerge. Um, well, first of all, I should say we're uh, talking to Jennifer Tucker, Associate Professor of History at the, and the College of uh, the Environment at Wesleyan University. Um, so one of the argument that then comes back, obviously, Jennifer, is, well, guns aren't like other things. They're not like toasters. They're not like bottles of pills because gun, because guns are mentioned in the Constitution in a way that bottles of pills and toasters and everything else and cars are, are not mentioned. So what's your response to that? Um, well, weapons have actually been regulated in, you know, for hundreds of years, actually. There's a very extensive um, firearm and weapons regulations dating back hundreds of years, both, um, you know, for centuries, English law broadly prohibited anyone from carrying a dangerous weapon in public beginning in the 14th century. And, um, and also this tradition of gun regulation took hold in America in the 17th and 18th century when several colonies enacted similar restrictions. And it also continued into the 19th century. So, um, you know, what this means is that um, actually throughout history and really recently, really only until the last 30 years ago, courts traditionally did not find any perceived conflict between either the Bill of Rights, uh, the English Bill of Rights, or the Second Amendment and reasonable regulations of guns. And yet, since about the 1970s, the history has given us, that, that's come down to us, has given us two myths. One is the right, that the right to carry under any circumstances at all is enshrined in the, in the Constitution, um, which sidesteps the issue of the well-regulated militia that the Second Amendment talks about. And secondly, that carrying guns is somehow in our cultural DNA and therefore, you know, outside of historical, um, uh, you know, it, it's just therefore unchanging. Both of these are relatively recent arguments, and they're both demonstrably false. Yeah, I know in one of the pieces that you wrote, uh, you talked about the so-called Wild West and said that in the 1880s, concealed carry laws would be a very common thing. That would be something people would be very familiar with, and it wouldn't have struck anybody, you know, even out there on the frontier, as unconstitutional. Right. On the, on the frontier, there were at least 15 and probably more towns um, that banned the, the um, carrying of, of weapons. Um, Part of the reason was that the leaders of frontier communities wanted to promote their towns and cities as safe places for settlers and, com and commerce. So in the city where I, I grew up, Wichita, Kansas, in 1873, um, you know, 150 years ago, someone arriving there would have seen signs saying, leave your revolver at police headquarters and get a check. And um, there was a very clear understanding on the American frontier that that civilized people didn't walk around carrying guns, and that although there was gun, gun possession, 
um, there was also gun control, and it's that second part of it that um, has been um, really glossed over and and not really known to very many people. And um, and 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 it's uh, it's important today because that's that's a that's certainly been a part of our um, you know it's part of our history. Uh, that the history of gun control is is there, and there are a number of of historians who have written about this. Um, so there's quite a lot of research that's been done on it. So uh, you pointed my attention at a piece by a short piece by Adam Gopnik in the New Yorker, uh, written in the last few days, um, and he talks about the fact he talks about the this famous uh, Stevens dissent in the Heller case, and and how Stevens sort of lays out the ways in which it's been understood for, historically prior to that case or prior to some of the run-up to that case, that um, that the well-regulated phrase, the phrase well-regulated in the Constitution, is there for a reason, because, in fact, the constitutional framers wanted there to be um, regulation. And, and I think Gopnik makes a great point. He says, you know, as a thought exercise, imagine that the phrase weren't there and we wanted to put it in. Uh, what would the, you know, what would the NRA and, and all their followers say? They'd go nuts, right? Because, in fact, it, it is there. Uh, it is there making that point that regulation uh, isn't unconstitutional. Right. I mean, um, it's, a, it's a brief while well worth reading the John Stevens dissent in the Hiller case. He said, no judge or justice expressed any doubt about the limited cover of the amendment for the first 200 years after the Second Amendment was passed. But then in the 1980s, laws liberalizing concealed carry laws swept the land. And um, Saul Cornell is a historian at Fordham, also writes about this. There are two profoundly important changes in the law that occurred, one in 2008 when the Supreme Court decided that the Second Amendment protects a civilian's right to keep a handgun at home for self-defense, and in 2010 when the court decided in McDonald versus Chicago that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment limits the power of Chicago to outlaw the possession of handguns by private citizens. So in other words, uh, I guess, you know, as the idea that that gun possession is sort of an inevitable outcome of two centuries of American gun possession is is a myth. It's the direct result of changes in the law that, and cultural attitudes that have occurred over the past 20 years. All right. Uh, Jennifer Tucker, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, from sure. Wesleyan University. Uh, Jennifer Tucker talking to us uh, about, in fact, uh, changes in the gun law. So do I take a break here? I'm all confused. Do I, I do break here. All right. When we come back, Eric Duggins from NPR, our, TV, our favorite TV guy, will talk to us about the season launch of Saturday Night Live. And watch your kids act it out. Some boy gets the milk fits, bourbon blows Reaches for the available arsenal And saunters off to make the news All right, we're back. And something we've come to enjoy since he joined the big network has been the incisive television criticism of Eric Deggins. Uh, he's, he does that for NPR, and he's going to join us right now to talk about the 41st season of Saturday Night Live. It's the first in maybe about three years in which there hasn't been sort of a massive cast turnover. Uh, it's pretty much the same people that you saw last year. Um, Eric Deggins, first of all, welcome back to the show. 
Hey, thanks so much for having me, and thanks so much for all the nice words. Well, you know, and before we get into the nuts and bolts of what happened on Saturday night, maybe we could talk just quickly. You know, it's a time when the comedy landscape has been changing for a while, right? Once upon a time, Saturday Night Live was kind of the go-to place for political satire and sketch comedy. And, I mean, it was sort of a supermarket that had everything, and not too many other places had anything. And then the landscape changed a lot. The Daily Show and the Colbert Report became big players. Key and Peele came along. Uh, and and reinvented a lot of ideas about sketch comedy. And, and I'm just mentioning the main ones. Amy Schumer's become a player, too. But that landscape changed a little bit, too, right? Stewart's gone. Colbert's moved to a different venue. Uh, Key and Peele uh, are gone. It kind of Does this give Saturday Night Live a chance to, an opportunity anyway, to reassert itself uh, as kind of, a, once again, a go-to destination? Well, you know, I think there's a, a few things going on here. Number one, um, you're right. Um, the the comedy news satire landscape has changed a lot. There's a lot more competitors uh, to say um, things that tap the zeitgeist in the way that SNL used to only be. Uh, they used to be the only show that could do that, and now there's many, many more shows that can do that. John Oliver. Uh, on HBO most recently, is really succeeding every week coming up with these uh, sort of extended uh, rants that really sort of touch a nerve that no one else is talking about. Uh, And Stephen Colbert is also easing into his groove um, hosting The Late Show. So Saturday Night Live has a huge challenge, and it's a challenge that, frankly, they haven't seemed to to be really be up to in the last couple of years. Um, there's a there's a presidential election coming. Uh, the last time they were really able to define a presidential election wasn't the last presidential election, but it was the one before that in 2008 when Tina Fey's impression of Sarah Palin really sort of solidified what was um, most um, impactful about that race and, and, and really submitted Sarah Palin's sort of image with the American public. Uh, they didn't really uh, achieve that in 2012, and now they've got this new election coming up. We saw uh, their satire of Donald Trump, and we saw how they handled Hillary Clinton. And frankly, it didn't feel like they defined very much or they said anything that was really new, uh, given that we've had weeks and weeks of satire about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton sort of leading up to this uh, debut of Saturday Night Live. Although, Eric, and we're going to play a clip, uh, a clip here, the clip uh, of the so-called cold open of the show. So uh, they've got Taryn Killam as uh, Donald Trump and Cecily Strong as Donald Trump's wife, who you don't hear that much about, uh, Melania Trump. Uh, and it does seem in this clip, uh, we'll just play a little tiny bit of it, that Cecily Strong, she kind of steals the bit a little bit from Killam. Let's hear some of that. All of this stuff's been blown out of proportion. I mean, like the Megyn Kelly stuff. Yes, people say it was not nice to her, but he was worried. You know, he said she's bleeding everywhere. She should go to hospital. That's right. I was actually afraid she was going to die. Honestly, I love Megyn Kelly. I love her. I think she's great. She's talented and beautiful, but she's a heifer who's always on her period, and I hate her, and I hope she dies. It's, first of all, not a great Donald Trump impersonation. Uh, uh, no, it's not. Well, I mean, it's interesting. If you listen to how Donald Trump actually talks, mm-hmm. it is actually a good Donald Trump impersonation. It's not a great impersonation of 
the image of Donald Trump, the caricature mm. of the image of Donald Trump. Like when you think about Dana Carvey, who everyone believes sort of nailed George H.W. Bush, he didn't really sound like George H.W. Bush. He sounded like our image of George H.W. Bush. He nailed this idea of this wonky, geeky, out-of-touch wasp who couldn't relate to anybody and meant well but was constantly screwing up, right? And and even when you think back to some classic SNL uh, impressions, you think about Dan Aykroyd doing Jimmy Carter. He didn't even shave his mustache when he played him. <laughs> you think about Chevy Chase playing Gerald Ford. He didn't change his appearance at all. But those guys captured something about the president that they were lampooning that uh, sort of hinged on what was funniest about them and what was also sort of their biggest weakness or uh, the thing that we, uh, you know, found most interesting about them. And, and, and this Donald Trump impersonation, you know, we've been subjected to months of, of humor about Donald Trump. So Taron Killiam didn't really come up with anything new there, and he didn't find a way to take the thing about Trump that we find compelling and turn that into an exaggerated caricature, which is what people really want in, in, a, in a great um, sort of parody impersonation on a show like Saturday Night Live. It, it could be argued, uh, Eric, that the, the person who got the sound of uh, Trump's voice better was was a surprise guest on the show. So uh, by now, most people have probably heard about this. Uh, one of the other bits involved uh, Kate McKinnon playing Hillary Rodham Clinton. She's sitting at a bar. Uh, she's uh, talking to her aide, Huma, and then she suddenly uh, starts talking to the bartender who has her back uh, to, to the customer and to the audience. The bartender turns around. It's the real Hillary Clinton. And so uh, here's a little uh, exchange back and forth between the two of them. I, I just wanted to say my sister's gay, so thank you for all you've done for gay marriage. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> it really is great how long you've supported great gay marriage. Yes. I, I could have supported it sooner. Well, you did it pretty soon. Could have been sooner. Fair point. <laughs> so Kate McKinnon, who, as most people know, uh, is a lesbian, is kind of needle- needling the candidate uh, by playing the candidate and confessing that it could have been sooner. Kind of a lot of layers to uh, to all this, Eric. And it it I thought it was a little bit of a surprise. This, in a way, was the sock they had that had a rock in it. You know, I mean, the fact that they actually had Hillary Clinton, but they didn't use it for the cold open. They kind of saved it a little bit. Were you surprised by this whole thing and by the choices that they made? Um, I thought it was. I thought it was smart. Uh, I, I, you know, every all of the news sort of leading up to SNL was, uh, you know, is Hillary Clinton going to be on the show? And she sort of said in various vague ways. I don't. Uh, I don't know if she ever actually came out and said it, but she said in various vague ways that she was going to be on the show. So people knew to expect that she was going to be on. To have her in the cold open, frankly, uh, you know, would have given people that moment as the show was starting, and you know, maybe people wouldn't hang with the show, uh, you know, until you know as it as it as it was uh, uh, unfolding. So to have her in a piece that's deeper in the show, where people have to watch more of the program to see her. Um, actually makes sense. And frankly, I thought it was a better joke uh, than trying to do something splashier in the cold open that would have required her maybe to act even a, a little bit uh, more than she had to in that in that sketch. 
Um, you know, one of the questions, of course, about SNL is it's a pretty old product now, 41 years old, and it hasn't really changed that much. I mean, a lot of the tropes that were there near the beginning, anyway, are still there. A lot of the structure is still there. You know, can, can it be fresh? And one of the things I think that they, they can do is recruit cast members who are a little bit different, who maybe speak to the moment a little bit. They've got this very young guy, Pete Davidson, who's, uh, among other things, this b- bizarre aspect of this, his father died in 9-11, and he's been known to use that as an actual comic trope in his stand-up. Um, here's, here he is, a little part of an editorial uh, where he's talking about uh, Donald Trump also. I'm like most people, you know, like when Trump announced he was running, I thought it was funny, you know, like, but that was four months ago, and he's winning, you know? It's, it's not funny anymore. <laughs> you know, I think America needs to stop doing things because it's funny. <laughs> you know, that's what makes me so mad about Trump. It's like, because now that he's winning... Now I actually have to go out and vote. You know, like that's the one good thing about Trump running. A Trump presidency is so terrifying. It actually like scares people my age into paying attention to politics. You know, you know who Donald Trump reminds me of? Uh, Sanjaya from American Idol. So there's Pete Davidson. And Eric, uh, you know, this is a guy that I think they do have high hopes for. There's something a little quirky about him, something a little bit off. He's younger than the rest of the cast. Um, He's in that bit anyway, doing something closer to stand up than to sketch comedy. How did that play for you? Well, uh, and I'll, I'll give you a little correction. That's the uh, sort of a quirk of, of how TV seasons are counted. This is they're starting their 41st season, but the the show's 40th anniversary is October 11th. Ah. So it's really bizarre. But anyway, uh, it'll be 40 years old on October 11th. Um, you know, I think what when SNL has um, sort of tapped the zeitgeist, and when people sort of feel like the show is really firing on all, on all cylinders, is when they find a cadre of um, unknown performers who step forward and kind of seize the, the limelight and really start cranking out great comedy. And so, you know, at one point it was, uh, you know, when they first debuted the show and they had people like John Belushi and Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. And then uh, it was when Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo kind of took the reins. And then, um, you know, more recently when, when Tina Fey uh, sort of rose to prominence and brought along women like Amy Poehler um, and, and, and Maya Rudolph, uh, and Kristen Wiig, uh, and then we had uh, Andy Samberg and and some of the pre-tape pieces that he did um, that, that really sort of um, defined a viral video. I mean, people forget that Lazy Sunday, that, that piece that Samberg did, um, you know, basically sort of defined the idea of, uh, you know, network TV shows creating viral videos and pushing them out and them helping the viewership of the show. Uh, you know, they started that years ago. Uh, and so now I think the show is looking to find, you know, who are these young, you know, talented performers that we can kind of give a showcase to who will come up and own the show and, and also sort of help us advance our comedy brand into the future. So obviously they're looking at Pete. Uh, Leslie Jones got a ton uh, of screen time in the in the premiere. Uh, Sashir Zamato, which is really, you know, she was she was the one who got all the ink for being uh, the first black woman that SNL had hired in a long time, uh, as they were getting criticism for not having by female performers on air. But Leslie Jones is the one that they featured the most, and, and I think she was in two or three skits um, on Saturday, sort of indicating that they're going to give her a lot of room uh, to perform and be seen. Uh, and and so it'll be interesting to see if these people that they're giving room to shine will actually step up 
and take the mantle and take the show along with them. All right, we're going to have to stop there. We're going to have a little fundraising break. I want to say that one of the ways that NPR can have somebody as cool and articulate as Eric Deggins is through the support of people like you. So we're just going to take a very, very few minutes uh, to remind you of how to support the radio station you're listening to right now. Then we'll be back with Dahlia Lithwick and the Supreme Court. Court never tackles the big questions. Who would win, a giant squid or a sperm whale? Who was better, Tupac or Biggie? How about the Cleveland Browns quarterback controversy? What are we paying these justices for? Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, Lydia Brown, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Zach LaSala. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Fred Armisen. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff cooking dinner for Victoria Jackson, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the art of movie title sequences. And now, back to Colin. Yes, and I don't usually assign homework, but I would really recommend uh, for tomorrow's show that you first look at a website called The Art of the Title, because I've discovered a lot of people barely know what a movie title sequence is, or they've never thought about it, and it doesn't really strike them as a thing. So you may need to do a little self-education. You'll enjoy tomorrow's show a lot more because we're going to have to describe a lot of movie title sequences to you, most of which are essentially silent. They have music playing. All kinds of other things are going on So, because uh, you're supposed to be watching the titles, right? Anyway, that's tomorrow. Today is today. We're going to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, to do that, uh, we're going to go to Dahlia Lithwick, who I've been talking to about the Supreme Court since Dahlia was, I think, about 14 years old. <laughs> um, and right after you listen to this, uh, you should then uh, go listen to Amicus, which is uh, Dahlia's amazing. Uh, Amazing podcast for the Slate family of podcasts. If you enjoyed Serial, this is a lot like Serial, except if Serial focused entirely on the judges, uh, then it would be exactly like Serial. Um, and but no, it's a, it's a great uh, sort of, and she has a great preseason, um, you know, sort of warm up podcast for this Supreme Court term. Uh, she's got Terry Bradshaw, Howie Long, uh, all the big ones. Uh, and uh, so today it's first Monday in October. Thanks to Jill Clayburgh and Walter Matthau, we know that that's the beginning of the U.S. Supreme court term. And Dahlia, one thing that you said is that one way this is being framed, not necessarily the only way, not even necessarily the dispositive way, is that that last season was there were some victories for for more or less the left. There was Obamacare, there was same-sex marriage, there was uh, the right to sue for housing discrimination. And that this time around it is, I think the term you use is it's being framed as flaming torches and flaming arrows coming from the right to the left. Um, explain what you mean by that. Well, I think that the kind of conventional wisdom at the end of last term was that the court had tacked really dramatically to the left for all the reasons that you say. You know, they they, they sign off on same-sex marriage around the entire country. They strike down a massive challenge to Obamacare, thumbs up on uh, Fair Housing Act and uh, the discrimination test use. Uh, thumbs up on uh, allowing states to have bipartisan redistricting committees. Uh, so really it looks like there was a huge, huge win for the left wing of the court. And, and that's a kind of complicated narrative because, in fact, the other way to look at what happened last term was that a lot of the cases were kind of overreach, that the kind of people who hated Obamacare, who wanted to gut uh, the Fair Housing Act, pushed a little too far, and the court knocked them back. So that what you had at the end of the term was less a huge lurch to the left than a status quo, that we're not going to lurch to the right. And so 
It's a little bit of a complicated story, but this year you don't see that. You don't see, with maybe one or two exceptions, a lot of cases that look as though uh, this is, you know, far-right groups trying to push an agenda in the court and hoping John Roberts will bless it. Instead, this is the kind of 2.0 term, where there are a lot of cases that are coming back to the court that the conservative wing of the court has signaled they might be ready to do away with doctrine in affirmative action and abortion in a lot of big, big areas. And this really may be, as these cases come back for a second bite at the apple, when the Roberts Court does tack dramatically to the right on cases they've seen once before, pushed away, but may be willing to take another look at. So uh, one of the things that we now know, uh, just looking at the Supreme Court season, is that uh, the reason that Texas cannot secede from the union is the Supreme Court would then have nothing to talk about. I mean, so many of these major cases this year do come out of Texas. And one of the points that one of the you kind of uh, uh, alluded to this, one of the things we kind of learned about uh, John Roberts, we've learned it term by term. We learned it in a more deep way last year is he doesn't like strictly political cases. If you're expecting him to be this kind of dyed in the wool spear carry for for the conservative cause in what seems to be a starkly political case. You might not get that from John Roberts. You might get it ideologically, but not if there's something that he doesn't like. Is there a way you can explain the thing that he doesn't like? I think he doesn't want the Supreme Court to be uh, the water boy, you know, for the, the Tea Party attacks on government. And so the best example of that really is Obamacare, that in two instances now where he had the opportunity to vote with the right wing of the court, he defected. And much to the chagrin, by the way, of the Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush, you know, community who really tore a strip off him at the GOP debates as though he was some kind of rabid, you know, pot smoking David Souter lefty. But I think that the reason that he defects and that he doesn't go along with those things is he just doesn't believe in that kind of nihilist view that uh, the best thing we can do with government is shrink it down and drown it in the bathroom, you know, he in the bathtub. He doesn't agree with that. He is, first and foremost, a longstanding business lawyer. Uh, he will always, always side with corporations. But in the Obamacare case, it's a good example of this was a pro-corporate law. This helped uh, the business community enormously. Why would he have eviscerated it? And so I think that, again, as you say, if you expect him to kind of carry water for these very, very speculative, let's just pull government down kind of uh, anti-Obama lawsuits like the ones that were directed at Obamacare, he's just not going to be your guy. All right. So uh, just as a point of correction, I don't think we know for sure that David Souter smoked pot. Uh, <laughs> he would climb mountains in New Hampshire. He'd roast a squirrel. Maybe he burned a little peyote or something. Who knows? But we don't know that he smoked pot. So uh, the, I, I sort of feel like there's this hashtag because Texas. There's like all these things that are coming out of Texas. So one of the cases is Evanwell. This is a, a voting rights c- uh, case. It has to do with uh, the way districts are apportioned. Uh, you could probably do a better job than I'm doing right now of sketching it out. Well, this basically, and this is the example when I said to you, you know, there's not a lot of these Hail Mary kind of far-right speculative cases. This actually is one of those. This is a little bit of a long-shot case. Uh, but it's, 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 the theory basically is that we've had a long-standing principle in American law that uh, we call the one-person, one-vote principle. And this goes back to a 1964 case. This is 
uh, what Chief Justice uh, Earl Warren said was his biggest contribution to jurisprudence. The case was Reynolds versus Sims, and it basically just apportioned, apportioned state legislatures uh, according to uh, the number of uh, people living in that area, and that was an attempt to correct for huge, huge disparities where you had districts that had, you know, a handful of people, districts that had thousands of people, um, and and there was such an incredible disparity in representation. So they tried to, to rejigger the whole system so that we have uh, what we now call one person, one vote. The challenge in Evanwell is literally this notion that we want to change it from one person, one vote uh, to one voter, one vote. And what that means is that we want to apportion districts only by eligible voters, not by people living in the districts. And if you look carefully at what that means, it means that cities who have, for instance, a lot of immigrants, uh, cities that have a lot of minors, juveniles who don't vote, uh, the idea is, well, why did they have equal representation? They have all these people who don't vote. We're going to make sure that on the only people who can vote are uh, uh, registered and counted voters. And uh, it's a huge problem because notably it runs into the actual language of the 14th uh, Amendment. And the other thing, as I said, is that this is just a pure politics case. This looks like it's an attempt, a, just a naked attempt, to disenfranchise jurisdictions that have a lot of uh, minority voters and a lot of children. It looks like it's an effort to disenfranchise big cities uh, and to kick uh, a lot of power back to rural areas. And so it really looks like what uh, the kind of thing that John Roberts hates most of all in this world, which is kind of an effort to use the court to forward an agenda uh, that doesn't necessarily serve constitutional principles, but serves, as you say, very partisan political ends. All right, Dahlia, let's take uh, switch gears. Uh, instead of talking about a case that comes from Texas, let's talk about... Oh, no, I'm sorry. This case comes from Texas, and it has the same <laughs> lawyer. Uh, Abigail Fisher did not get into the University of Texas at Austin uh, and sued, claiming that the emissions program, program violated her 14th Amendment rights. Um, this is one of the same lawyers who's suing in Evanwell. Actually, you did, a ver I think, an episode of Amicus about how there are these kind of super lawyers who come up before the Supreme Court before much more than anybody else. So Edward Blum uh, wins the prize this time. This is his case, too. It challenges affirmative action policies, the court has said in the past, has granted some latitude to so-called holistic uh, affirmative action policies that, that seek to, to create a diverse campus as long as they have like lots of other things they're doing and maybe they let the top 10 percent uh, in totally on merit or something, that they still have some kind of latitude to do affirmative action. Uh, this looks like yet another challenge. Right. This is so important for exactly uh, the reason we said before. This is one of those 2.0 cases. You know, the court, it's actually kind of a 7.0 at this point because the court has, keeps hearing these affirmative action challenges, and we continue to think, okay, this is the end of affirmative action. The court clearly has five votes to do away with it, and yet the court never seems to pull the plug. So in 2003, the court had an opportunity to do this in Michigan and to say, okay, you can never, ever use race as a factor in an admissions policy and the court uh, declined to do that. And Sandra Day O'Connor, writing the majority, famously said in 2003, you know, I think in 25 years we're going to be done with the need for affirmative action, but we're not there yet. Uh, and then O'Connor was promptly replaced by Samuel Alito, who does not like affirmative action. So we thought when the court uh, took another case, and this is the first round, 
round of the Fisher case that you're describing in Texas in 2013, that the court was ready to basically say, you know what, we're done. Affirmative action is over. You cannot use race, not even as a factor, not even if you're trying to create a diverse student population. It's always impermissible. And uh, the court sort of surprised everyone by kicking it back to the lower courts and saying, this program in Texas, we think, needs to be looked at a little bit more closely. We think that the district court didn't use the highest level of scrutiny, and we want the court to make 100% sure uh, that this uh, passes the highest level of constitutional muster. And uh, somehow, uh, the, the lower court said, no, nope, we looked at it again. We're good. It's You can use race in this way. We can't think of a narrower uh, way to do it. And uh, so, so now it's back. And uh, it's back so that Really, I think Justice Kennedy, who's the one who's been in the middle on this and so many other cases we're going to talk about, uh, Justice Kennedy really, I think at this point, has to just make a call and say, is uh, a race-based affirmative action, is there any place for it in higher education? Can it be used? In Texas, it's only used, as you said, as one factor after the top 10% get in on merit. It's a, a, a small part of what's called a holistic uh, program for admissions. And if uh, Justice Kennedy looks at it this time and says, I just, I can't, I can't live with affirmative action anymore, then affirmative action programs across the country will fall. You know, we're going to run out of time. So I'm really, I really do recommend that, first of all, you read uh, Dahlia's coverage in Slate. Uh, there's an abortion case that's also coming out of, surprise, Texas, uh, that may have some real significance. Also one about the, uh, the affiliation rights of people in public sector unions across the country. I think that one does not come out of Texas. I, don't know, I couldn't find a good Texas case on that one. But you know, just in the minute or so that we have left, you know, we began this show, Dahlia, talking about the Second, Second Amendment, about uh, gun rights in, in, the, in the face of what happened out in Oregon and what's happened in so many other places. Do we know yet whether the Supreme Court is going to hear a significant gun case this time? It's such a good question, and the short answer is there isn't one right now that's docketed. The court has had lots of opportunities uh, after they decided Heller, you know, that was the seminal case where yeah. they changed the reading of the Second Amendment to allow for an individual uh, right to bear arms that was not rooted in uh, the need for a militia. And they've batted back a whole bunch of cases that would have clarified and refined their Heller ruling. And so it's to the great frustration, actually, of uh, the pro-gun side of this debate that the court hasn't taken an opportunity to take another gun case and create more robust protections for guns. And uh, as a result, you have a lot of communities that are still imposing pretty draconian gun laws. So for some reason, I guess the short answer is the court has not really squarely taken on a major gun case. Uh, And I think that both sides feel that they need to do that because the Heller ruling was pretty ambiguous when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of what kind of regulations are going to be permissible. All right, Dahlia Lithwick. And for more details, absolutely listen to Amicus. You should subscribe to Amicus the way that I do so you don't miss any episodes of it. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. And yes, it does help our show specifically. If you love our show, it helps us if you give during our pledge drive, our pledge break. That's coming right up. So 1-800-584-2788. You can call right now or these wonderful, nice, cheerful, delight people, delightful people will tell you why you should call, where you should call, how you should, how you should call, and what they would like to give you. Only we can take a law and make it legal.